What's going on, guys? It's JP from the Double Double, and I'm here with my co-host, Ben. What's going on, everybody? Welcome. And per usual, me and Ben started topic of, talking about our topic before we even pressed record, so we're just going to hop into it today. Massive breaking news yesterday. Adrian Griffin, head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks, gets fired at the halfway point of the season. And let's just jump into this conversation. We've been talking for about 20 minutes about it. I just think this is, one, a smart move. I think the Bucks. the reason I brought them up in our big questions episode with like the bad losses making them an actual finals contender or not is because they kept losing weird fucking games where Detroit, the Detroit Pistons would put up 119 against the Milwaukee Bucks and they would squeak out a win against one of the worst teams in NBA history. That just didn't feel right to me. And some of the games they lost, like Utah destroyed them. The Pacers have perennially beat them throughout this season. Something just fell off, and the Terry Stotts firing over the offseason started flashing warning lights at us a while ago, and that was, what, four months ago? So I can't say I'm super surprised. What were your initial reactions to the firing of Adrian Griffin? I I mean, it's a mixed bag, man. It is a mixed bag. I can't think of a coach who has been fired this quickly into his rookie season head coaching. I can't think of it ever happening. Um, but obviously the Bucks were an awful defense and he was not a great coach. I think, you know, Giannis basically said it without saying it um, when he talked about how every single aspect of the organization needs to be changed and needs to be improved. Um, you know, that that is a pretty big, you know, glaring problem when it's that big of an issue where you got to like complain that much about it. Um Doc Rivers is a better coach than Adrian Griffin. Both of them are worse than Budenholzer. I think that is what I would say pretty, pretty confidently. Yeah, and that's the next part of the conversation, right? Is they just hired Doc Rivers uh, to take the spot of Adrian Griffin. And we can hop into that. Doc Rivers and how we view him as a head coach is really kind of interesting because me and you are not big fans quite honestly, like just to be honest with our listeners here, we're not a huge fan of Doc Rivers, but I think there's a no questions asked understanding that he's better than Adrian Griffin. Like Adrian Griffin, you could kind of tell there was some incompetence there from the start. Like 10 games into the Bucks season, so many things had gone wrong so quickly. Like their defense has fallen off a cliff after being the number one defense in the league last year. And Terry Stotts getting fired. I mentioned that before. That is Damian Lillard's right-hand man. For him to willingly walk out of a situation because of how dysfunctional it was, that was not a good sign. So Doc Rivers coming in, I know we say a lot of things about his playoff performances, which are warranted. Like as a head coach, there hasn't been a, a more losing head coach in the postseason than Doc Rivers. But what we can't really hate on Doc for is being a steadying presence. So I do think this is the right figurehead to bring in at this time with this situation. I think that's fair. I mean, the Bucks are 30 and 13 right now. And if you listen to discourse around the Bucks, it's kind of like people are upset with that record. People are very unimpressed <laughs> with that record. And if you watch them, it makes sense, man. There's a, so much that could be improved with this roster and the way that they play defense specifically. Doc Rivers is going to help with that, 100%. Uh, his first season coaching in the NBA was in the 1999-2000 season. Doc Rivers has been around for a long-ass time. And with that, definitely comes a lot of losses. But there isn't, you're right, there isn't a more losing head coach 
in playoff basketball history than Doc Rivers, especially when it's a closeout game. Yeah, I know he has some real scars on his resume that I'm not willing to overlook either. Um, but I think he's the right guy for right now. I, I don't know if there's better options on the open market. I really don't. Who is going to be better than Doc Rivers to come into this situation and get them close to a championship? There's no one else. Now, whether he's the long-term solution here, I don't know. He's worked with star players in the very recent times. He worked with Joel Embiid for three years. He worked with Kawhi Leonard for three years. So he has a track record of dealing with these star teams with championship aspirations. Obviously, he hasn't claimed the ring. Um, so it should be interesting to see how that all plays out. I want to loop back, though, to something I was saying before we started recording. We need to talk about Giannis, and we need to talk about star players, their responsibility to their rosters and teams, because... This is something that I'm starting to get pretty sick of, where we give these star players massive, massive, massive responsibilities because they hold so much leverage over their respective franchises, right? We saw it with LeBron James two summers ago. Get me Russell Westbrook. Get rid of Caruso, Kuzma, everyone. Get rid of them. I want Russell Westbrook. Well, then LeBron bitches and pouts for a year and a half because Russell Westbrook's on his team and they're not a contender because of the very deal he made. I think that's stupid as fuck. Now we look at now we look at Giannis. Giannis after the playoff series last year, fire Mike Budenholzer, hire Adrian Griffin and trade for Damian Lillard. And now Adrian Griffin's fired and he was bitching and moaning the first 40 games of the season saying we need to change every single level of our franchise. We all need to be better. You are the one who made the fucking decision. You were the one who dangled your contract extension over your organization's head as leverage to force them to do what you wanted. I think that is corny as fuck. And why we, we don't talk about this more or why we don't give Giannis a, a slice of the blame pie despite how fucking fantastic he's been this season is weird as hell to me. I don't really get it. And I also quickly, sorry... I'm rambling here. Before we started the podcast, we brought up the examples of GMs who looked their star players in the eyes and said, go fuck off. I know more than you about basketball. Danny Ainge, Pat Riley. I'd say those two guys are pretty good at their jobs. It's almost like if you have a backbone and stand up to your star players, it might work out or something. So, I mean, but we've got plenty of examples of the opposite being true as well. I mean, we when? talked about it 2016, David Blatt being fired, being replaced by Teron Luke. That was a LeBron James-led decision, and it absolutely helped them win that championship. Having a real voice in Toronto Lou was a good thing for them. But it really puts quick, all though. the responsibility on that star player who makes that decision. Yeah, and you just gave credit to LeBron for getting Blatt out of there and bringing in Ty Lue. What about in 2012 when he wanted Eric Spolster fired? Right. And Pat Riley to go tell Pat Riley told him to go fuck himself. Right. Right. Now, Different strategies. Both of them led to championships. <laughs> that's fair. I would say more frequently when you stand up to your star player, good things happen. That's what I would say. If you know your shit, absolutely. If yeah. you're Pat Riley or Danny Ainge and you're telling your star player no, it's because you know your shit. If you're, you know, whatever the mess going on in Portland, Dame Lillard consistently saying, give me more help, and they consistently said no, like that was a mistake. And that team forever was just worse than they could have been. They just got Dame Lillard some help. Um, what this does is just put the responsibility pretty much entirely on Giannis. 
Um, you wanted Mike Budenholzer out the building, even though he was getting you 60 win seasons. And honestly, I didn't have a problem with that. Um, I think Mike Budenholzer is one of the, you know, one of those playoff coaches. Everybody has said it. He doesn't make adjustments. Giannis said it himself in that loss to Miami. Why are we not making adjustments? Why is Drew Holiday? Why am I not guarding Jimmy Butler in isolation? Um, there's always things. Every series you can pick apart with Budenholzer. Adrian Griffin was not a good coach. You replaced him with a guy who was clearly worse than Budenholzer, and then you re- replaced that guy with the joke of the NBA in terms of NBA coaches. I mean, you know, I can't think of many guys that get the amount of shit that Doc Rivers gets in terms of coaches. And deservedly so, like yeah, we mentioned, right. right? Like he has the most 3-1 losses in NBA history in playoff series. Uh, he's been coaching for 20 years. The one year he won a championship was when he had one of the most beautiful blending of talent we've ever seen in the big three in Boston. And he got one ring out of it. Right. Now, if you look over his resume, are there some like weird spots where you can kind of make excuses for Doc? Sure. But at the end of the day, this is 20 years running, right? And... At some point, you have to be an elevator of talent, and you have to be a leader of men. I mean, go look at that Game 7 Philly played against the Celtics last year with Doc at the helm. The game was over at halftime. Like, James Harden, who was a playoff pants pooper, slumped his way into the locker room, shoulders bent over. Joel Embiid's laughing and joking it up on the bench at the fourth quarter when they're down 25. Like, it was disgusting behavior, and I think if you have a different personality at the top, you probably don't see that. But at the same time, like Giannis, as much shit as I want to give Giannis today for, you know, having to lie in the bed that he made, in terms of a superstar and his personality towards the game, I don't know if there's a better fit. He's internally motivated. He plays defense harder than anyone in the league. He plays offense harder than anyone in the league. He just has a relentlessness that I don't see in other players in the NBA. So if he just keeps that same energy... That's fantastic. Doc Rivers won't have to be a motivator of men. Giannis is internally motivated. What I'm really curious about is just the use of Damian Lillard because he's been asked, like, honestly, let's just call it what it is. Last year, he had one of the most efficient point guard seasons ever. And then this year, he comes in into Adrian Griffin's system, to be fair, who we both agree is a horrible head coach Mm -hmm. and has struggled mightily. His percentages have dropped significantly in both categories from the floor and from three, you know, the Bucks thought they were trading for an all NBA point guard. That's not what Damian Lillard is right now. Do you see his production rising up with doc rivers coming in as a head coach? So that's the thing. Doc rivers has two very tough challenges ahead, getting Dame Lillard to go back to his Portland self and getting to motivate the rest of the team outside of Giannis. Those are the two struggles for doc rivers because you know, you look back on those Philly teams, there's no issue with Joel Embiid being motivated or getting his touches, getting the shots that he wants. Doc Rivers is great with that. It's when it comes to your fourth, your fifth man, you know, Tobias Harris, we want you to take five shots. Do not touch the ball. Um, you know, some coaches are really good at getting everyone involved equally. Some coaches are not. Doc Rivers is not one of those guys. You want to be a star in a Doc Rivers system. Um, So I think that's going to be great for Damian Lillard. And I think Giannis is going to look awesome. But after that, like, are we going to have Chris Middleton basically being a Tobias Harris from last year where like we're terrified to give him shots and have him touch the ball? You know, Bobby Portis has been complaining all year about Adrian Griffin. Yeah. Um, What does he look like with the Doc Rivers coach? 
Um, there's a lot of question marks when it comes to just the vibes around Milwaukee right now. Right, and that's a huge part of what Doc Rivers' job is going to be, is just literally make the players happy. Uh, you had Bobby Portis, a leader of the team, complaining. Damian Lillard complaining to Chris Haynes all year about Adrian Griffin. Giannis getting him fired. So, like, the players just hated Adrian Griffin. He wasn't what they thought he was, and they got him fired. That is what happened. Mm-hmm. You think it was the organization. It's, that's not what happened. Um and God, I hope I hope he figures out this roster because they do they did have something special brewing with their offense, right? They were demolitioning people um, in terms of they're dropping 140 points, 100 like 35 points because Malik Beasley's having a career year and Giannis is absolutely demolitioning people in the paint, and Damian Lillard, even though he's having a down year, is still a threat to the point where you have to guard him as if he's his prime self. And not to mention, Chris Middleton's been on a heater for the last month since kind of ramping up his minutes. So there is something special brewing there. It's just how can we change the defense and how can we make these players happy to go to work every day? Um, that's that's a big responsibility to do halfway through a season. Yeah, he's got, you know, 40 games here to figure out how to make their defense go from 21st in the NBA to somewhere semi-respectable. Right. It's not like the roster has improved in any way. Um, that's going to be challenging, man. That's going to be very challenging. I think I'm confident here in saying that this puts the Bucks and the Sixers on the same tier list in my eyes. Okay. Um, I think there are better. There's certainly better coaches that exist than Doc Rivers. There are there better coaches that were available that you could have easily signed. I don't know exactly who they are off the top of my head. But this right. is not a move that makes me more confident in the Bucks going into the playoffs. For me, it does. Uh, because my hope in Adrian Griffin was so low. Mm. And the losses they kept having were so weird. And it did show, like, discontent. Uh, I think that goes, maybe doesn't go away fully. But stops happening as frequently. And this actually, weirdly enough, like... I think it almost makes the Bucks more of a contender in my eyes, firing their head coach at the midpoint season, uh, which is an odd, odd thing that really wouldn't happen for many other teams. Uh, but I just felt like that was such a poor pairing with Adrian Griffin in that roster, and we just heard too much noise out of that locker room. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, this was inevitable. Um, yeah. It could have. We could have waited until they had an ugly, ugly playoff loss to get rid of Adrian Griffin, but I think everybody knew where this was going. Yeah, but it doesn't give me more confidence in Doc Rivers. Doc Rivers is the coach who I have thought he was for the past, you know, however many seasons. Something I am curious to watch with Doc is having him have two playoff risers, um, because yes, he did coach Kawhi, but he also coached playoff P, which is not an awesome player. Uh, and then he goes to 76ers. He had James Harden the biggest pants pooper in NBA history in the postseason. So this team has Damian Lillard, playoff riser, and Giannis, playoff riser. I am curious if they can kind of mask some of Doc's deficiencies just because they take a step up when the lights are brightest. That's something I'll be looking for come postseason. Did playoff P, was that a nickname that he had before he came to a Doc Rivers team? He gifted himself that nickname. 
um, and was ass in the postseason. And COVID, COVID year was literally one of the worst performances I've ever seen by a player by Paul George. And that was with Doc Rivers as the coach. That's so, what I'm saying. You know, we got, yeah. But he's, he was a playoff pants pooper until two years ago, Paul George. Like his entire, well. The year before, yeah. I mean, he averaged 29, 9, and 4 in the series before when he was on OKC. Then he goes to the Clippers and averages 19, 7, and 4. I think right. maybe you can give some blame to Doc Rivers for that. And that could be true, right? But we're going to get to see a new iteration. Doc with his hands on new star players. Is this finally the the star pairing that works for Doc? Or is this just like, hey, we'll we'll clean up the regular season and we'll go in and we'll die to the Celtics or we'll die to the Sixers. I don't know. It's hard for me to doubt them when they have the second best player in the league or third best player in the league in Giannis right now. Yeah. I mean, my, my gut reaction is this is not going to lead them to anything great in the playoffs. Let's give it 20 games and let's see if, you know, there's any bit of improvement in the defense. Let's see if Dame gets a little better. He obviously has room to expand his game on this team. Right. Um, you know, I could be proven wrong here. Absolutely. Yeah. If Doc figures out a way to unlock Damian Lillard, this is this becomes a legitimate title threat to me. Because if the Bucks go into a series with the Celtics, they have the best player. And if Damian Lillard's unlocked, they have the, the third best player, right? He's better than Jalen Brown, Chris Stops, Derek White. It doesn't matter. He's mm-hmm. better than all those dudes by a significant margin, mind you. That's what wins in the NBA. I know the Celtics are extremely deep, but if Damian Lillard starts to look more like his old self under the tutelage of Doc Rivers, I will have more respect for this team come postseason time. I think so too, man. I mean, Dame Lillard last year was insane and like a fringe top 10 player. Yeah. Uh, like I, I was calling him a top 10 player. Um, if he comes back to that, the Bucks are a very, very scary team, but I don't think Doc Rivers is the dude who can bring him back to that. And why do you think that? Because he's had a history of, you know, helping players reach that level of potential. I mean, he's got a history of being a loser, is I guess what it comes down to. He's got a history of being relied on and having great teams and underperforming consistently for two decades now. Yeah, and he also has a history of making players develop into something more. Like, he turned Blake Griffin into a guy who could dunk into an all-NBA player who could pass the ball, dribble, self-create. He also turned Joel Embiid into a perennial MVP candidate. He has some developmental chops. uh, And obviously Damian Lillard doesn't need developmental help. He knows who he is as a player already. But can he just bring him back to his normal performance? I Trust me, I'm not a Doc Rivers fan. But Adrian Griffin getting the job in the first place, I think me and you were both kind of like, whoa, First-time head coach for a team who's trying to win an NBA championship. That's pretty rare. Um, and he did a fucking horrible job. 100%. So, I, I don't know. I'm just a little bit more hopeful, it seems, than you are on this whole shenanigans. But this has been a really weird topic. Uh, you don't see this type of stuff very often. No, not for a team that wants to win as bad as Milwaukee does. Not for a team that's got those kind of expectations where it is championship or bust. Um, I legitimately, I couldn't name a head coach that I'd be more terrified of when you're in the head, the, the chipper bust mindset. Doc Rivers is the ultimate guy that I'm terrified to have as my coach. If I'm trying to win it all. It's fair. It's fair. I'm not going to, I mean, it's not like he's going to enter a battle of wits with Joe Missoula though. Right. So, I mean, 
It's not... Nick Nurse could run laps around him. Eric Spolstra, sure, but fucking Joe Missoula? <laughs> I mean, I'm not I'm not too worried about him in a battle of wits. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be really interesting for the box moving forward here. Yeah, man. I'm excited to just see it happen. Um, I want to pivot to a thing that we didn't really have on the pre-show, but I just want to hear you talk about. The Cleveland Cavs have won eight straight. Yeah. Um, I think we talked about them when they had won six straight, and since then they beat the breaks off the Hawks and the Magic. Yeah. Um, people are starting to kind of understand what me and you have been saying for months here, which is that as great as this Jared Allen play is, he should go. He needs to go before Evan Mobley comes back. I think it's a yeah. 0% chance he gets traded. Um, I'm not that thrilled about Mobley and Garland coming back, which sucks yeah. because of how fun they've been. Yeah, something interesting that I've been thinking about and even heard was... <laughs> the benching of Evan Mobley or the trading of Evan Mobley instead of Jared Allen, mm-hmm. right? This is a guy, if you're unfamiliar with our podcast, that I came on here and said was going to be a top 75 player of all time before he stepped foot into the league. Um, I was very, very confident in Evan Mobley becoming an all-NBA level player. That is not what's going to happen. And the more the more I've paid attention, the more I've actually just looked at myself, whether it was hometown bias because he was a Cleveland Cavalier and I was rooting for him and I wanted him to become that versus what I actually saw. And I've detached myself from him these two months that he's been hurt or this month he's been hurt. There's not a lot of offensive game there. Just like at all, any scoring at all, is not natural to him. Now, I will never concede that his passing isn't great because it is. Like his pass, he is a great passing big. But without him at the five, his handle is not tight enough to go against fours. He will be stopped every single time. In the paint against fives, he's too hesitant. He doesn't show an aggression to get up through contact and finish over bigger guys. That is something that Jared Allen, you don't have to worry about. Jared Allen's going through people. He's dunking on people's heads. If he doesn't feel comfortable at the perimeter, guess what? He gives up the ball in a millisecond and just rolls to the paint. Um, There isn't, okay, Jared Allen, we need you to cook in isolation here. There's none of that confusion. With Evan Mobley, because they want him to grow his game, there is confusion with him. And I heard someone on a podcast, I believe it was KOC, bring up the question, do they trade Evan Mobley right now in his young years to get a massive haul back and just try to tool around Donovan Mitchell and Jared Allen? And it's like, I can't even argue with the philosophy anymore because it's working so well. Um, I'm really intrigued when those fucking two guys come back because last year they had the sixth best offense in the league, but we all kind of knew it wasn't. Like, we all kind of knew, like, okay, this Isaac Okoro thing's going to ruin them, Mm -hmm. and it did. If the, if the replacement, Max Struess, comes in at the three spot, or Sam Merrill, who's been fucking lighting the world on fire, or George Niang, who went 10 of 14 from three two weeks ago, if one of those guys comes in next to Mobley and Allen, I don't know if it'll work, but I, I just don't even know what to think about this team in its totality anymore. Yeah, man, I've been trying to think about where is the landing spot for Evan Mobley. Because I kind of, I feel like I floated the idea. We've had kind of conversations about what would that trade even look like. How many teams are trying to get him to their team? You need to have spacing bigs. You know, maybe the Grizzlies, you could put him next to Jaron Jackson Jr. And that's a massive defensive lineup. 
Um, But there really aren't many teams that you can look at and say like, yes, Evan Mobley absolutely fits really well here. Um, And that's kind of the, the interestingness about his play about his character. He's like, not, He's a dude who could be so much better. We watch this and we've had conversations about this for years. Every game, it feels like there's five or six shot attempts that Mobley should have taken where he just refused to even look at the basket. And if we ever got a version of him that was aggressive in scoring, like there's, he could easily be a 20 point per game scorer. He's at 16 points now. Um, It's just, you know, how does that come? How do we get that version of him? Clearly, it's not placing him next to another seven footer. Right. Right, which is an issue. Um, so I, I, it's been really weird for me as a Cavs fan to be like, this is a guy I thought was going to be Anthony Davis but healthy, and he might just be Jaron Jackson Jr., um, which is like the third best player on a championship team, maybe the fourth best player on a championship team. I always thought he had the potential to be number two on a championship team. It, I, I'm not... I'm not there anymore. Like I've been, seen enough. It's been an upsetting third year, 100%. 100%. And if you're from the Cavs' point of view, like you're kind of glad this is happening because extension time is in the summer, right? Are you still giving this guy $40 million a year, $50 million? No. The no. answer is just no. He's His value has tanked. His improvement from his rookie year has been there, but it's been extremely incremental. So, you know you get to pay him hopefully less than the running rate for that extension because Cade's going to get his $50 million and Scotty's going to get his $50 million. But with Mobley, can you pay him 30 You know, you're saving $20 million a year on that guy? I, I don't know. That helps. Um, but this team's been really weird. I'm excited for those guys to get back because I just want to see what a shooting three looks like next to the double big. Um and you can argue the team doesn't even have their best shooter right now in Darius Garland. He's not even playing for them. So it's kind of, I don't know, I'm super interested by this whole Cavs experience. It's so strange, all it's, of it. It's so strange, man. And I was thinking Jared Allen was older than he was. He's only 25. So, you know, he's also a young center who just does everything you need a center to do really perfectly. I yeah. I want it to succeed. I want to see the Mobley-Allen thing succeed. At least let's get a first round win. Um, yeah, I personally think, you know, it's got to be Garland and Mobley together. Um, those are the two guys. Like if you're if you've homegrown these two guys, you probably want to keep them around. Donovan Mitchell has his sights on bigger, bigger stadiums. Jared Allen, you could absolutely get value for. I would love it if the team was Darius Garland, Evan Mobley and some shooters. I would love to see him at the five as well, because I know what Darius Garland is. He's a borderline all star guard. I think he's eerily similar to Mike Conley for his career projection. Hopefully a little bit better, but pretty close. Um, And then with Evan Mobley at the five, I mean, does he become a guy who averages 19, 10, and 5? Where he becomes what I've always envisioned him being, a all-NBA caliber defender and DeMontis Sabonis. Where he's orchestrating an offense, grabbing boards, and getting easy buckets near the hoop but also being a, a defensive player of the year candidate type of play. Like, I still kind of see the vision. I'm just lower on it happening because they're so committed to Jared Allen and Donovan Mitchell. Like, they're not going anywhere. Kobe Altman has been very steadfast in that. The worst part to me is just the way that first round loss went last year. Like, yeah. Jared Allen, 
for as great as he has been through the past 20 games or so, if we see any sort of version of him against the Knicks where he was getting out-rebounded by Josh Hart, there goes yeah. your trade down. All the way back down to the bottom, there goes any chance of you retooling and getting better off of trading him. If it yeah. fails, they just dump him for nothing, effectively. I don't know. I don't know. I think they're just gonna they're gonna stick with it until they figure it out, which is it could be never. But I think if you're Kobe Altman, you're thinking I have four very talented players on my roster that a lot of other teams would like to have on the roster at the same time. How can I make it work with what I have? And his idea was getting shooting and. I'm not kidding, guys. They could not have done a better job. Sam Merrill, George Niang, Max Struess, fucking even Isaac Okoro has taken a little bit of a jump up. Obviously, you don't want him taking jump shots. But then you have Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. That is five. Uh, and Dean Wade has finally had his revival season I've been fucking waiting for. So, like, that's six guys right there that you're comfortable taking five threes or more. That's what they've been trying to craft around those two big guys. So Kobe Altman's telling himself, we haven't even been able to see the experiment yet because Mobley's been injured for a while and so is Darius Garland. And before both of those guys got hurt, Donovan Mitchell and Jared Allen were hurt. So for them to be on a 52-win pace with all these injuries, Altman's telling himself, we're a championship contender once those guys come back. That's what he's telling himself. He definitely is, especially when they were the number one defense on a top 10 offense last season. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. You take that team and you add shooting on paper. That's a team that's at least winning that first round series, if not more. Right. Um, you know, in practice, we've seen what it looks like when you got two short dudes and two seven footers who can't shoot. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see it. I think it's at least like stick to your guns, Kobe Altman. I think it's yeah. good that you're like, no, this is my strategy. This is what I brought this team together for. We're going to see it through first. I, and I'm, I'm honestly a fan of that as well because that shows clear vision and clear purpose and I'm cool with stability in my organization I love that all the time um I I, I can't wrap my head around how they're on pace to be a 50 win team with these injuries I like what other team is doing that having their two two of their four best players go down and keep a 50 win pace that is like legitimately impressive I'm trying to figure out what this team actually is come postseason time yeah, man. I think before Mobley and Garland went down, the Cavs were averaging 11 three-point attempts made, or 11 three-pointers made a game. And since yeah. then, it's been like 16 or 17, like 19 <laughs> in a lot of games. Like, yeah. you know, you've seen the Sam Merrill shots. You've seen George Niang putting up 30. Um, some of these dudes can fucking shoot, man. It's yeah. awesome to watch. And what I do think we're going to see as well, which I was clamoring about in the offseason during free agency periods, is solo Jared Allen lineups and solo Evan Mobley lineups yes. surrounded by four shooters. Absolutely. Like that will be something we see. So come postseason time, they're slated to either face New York or Miami, most likely in a first round series, you know, instead of New York being able to sag off Isaac Okoro with Josh Hart and have an extra rebounder to box out Mobley and Allen all series long. That's fucking Sam Merrill. Like he's about to put up 15 points on you in a quarter because he's that type of shooter or George Niang. You know, I'm just curious if this is the year they actually figure it out, even though it's looked so weird this year because they're better without two of their four best players. I'm I'm just excited for them that they've managed to hold on to the four seed. Uh, eight games straight, 
excellent play from Donovan Mitchell. Excellent play from Jared Allen. The shooting has been awesome. Unlocked. Um, yeah, when they come back, I just hope it all continues, man. The vibes are great. Yeah. That's what we'll say. When they're showing up, they're showing up to a team that is cooking. That's kind of the best and, situation to go to. And you're so right, because earlier in the season, the vibes were fucking horrible. So bad. I didn't. Darius Garland's one of the happiest guys in the entire NBA. I think I saw him smile twice. And now you see Donovan Mitchell after every game being like, wait till we get our boys back. We're going to fucking run this thing. Like they believe in themselves. They think they are a championship caliber team. Yeah. It's just, can we make it work? Um, it's one of the most interesting stories in the NBA this year, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Something I want to kick back to you with some kind of breaking news that happened yesterday but Terry Rozier got traded to the Miami Heat. And if you listen to our last podcast episode, I made the exact trade that happened, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, it was a first round pick and Kyle Lowry to the Charlotte Hornets for Terry Rozier in return. How does this change your opinion on Miami? Does it put them in the tier with the Milwaukee Bucks and Philadelphia 76ers, or are they still a tier below? I think they're still a tier below, but it's one of those things where like the the total sum of talent once the playoff starts is probably going to put them at even footing with Philly okay. and Milwaukee. Like Terry okay. Rozier, I'm scared of him when it comes to him playing the Celtics. I remember his departure. I remember all the shit he had to say when he left. Um, I think he's a dude that would come on to that, come into that series and try to light the Celtics on fire. Um, yeah. It's, it's such a great trade for them, man. Getting rid of a $30 million player in Kyle Lowry, who is terrible, 37 yep. years old, and I don't know why he was getting as many minutes as he was, and you replace him with a dude who can give you 25 in any given night. What a great trade for Miami. Yeah, it's like an A++ for me to actually get it done. These are Kyle Lowry's box scores from just the few past few games. Two points, two points, four points, two points, zero points, six points, six points. He He's washed. He's 30, like, eight. His knees are gone. He's an undersized point guard who's heavy. Like, Terry Rozier is an athlete. He's shifty as fuck. His off-the-dribble creation is incredible. I've watched a ton of Hornets basketball this year, so I've actually got to see this up close. He is legitimately good, and I think having an extra guy on that roster that can score 20 points or 25, like you mentioned, is so big for them. Having a lineup that could be, you know, Terry Rozier, Tyler Hero, Jimmy Butler, Jaime Hawkes, and Bam Adebayo, that's a really fucking good lineup. And then you have guys to interchange like Duncan Robinson, Kevin Love, Caleb Martin. You're eight deep. You're eight. That's your eight. And going into the playoffs, you have scoring options everywhere. And you have Bam being able to distribute and run pick and roll and shit. So I, I just think it, it puts them on the same tier as Philly and Milwaukee for me. I think it might, man. I think it might. Um, Terry Rozier, it's just the way that they're going to be able to get buckets now that Terry's on the team. Yeah. He's one of the best catch-and-shoot three-point guys in the NBA over the last couple of seasons. And just, you know, looking back, thinking about the kind of wide-open looks that they get for Kyle Lowry, for Caleb Martin, for Josh Richardson. You're replacing that with a 40% catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. Like, that's terrifying. That is genuinely yeah. terrifying. Um, but then it's just like, you know, adding one more B, B-minus player to the Miami Heat and just hoping yeah. you can squeeze out a diamond when the playoffs start. And Eric Spolstra has shown he makes a B-minus, 
a B plus, and he makes a, a C minus, a C plus, and that's just the type of head coach he is. So I just, you know, I can picture Terry Rozier swinging a game in a fourth quarter by himself in the postseason, right? Like that seems very realistic to me. Um, and I think a lot of people think of Terry as like an on-ball guy. He needs the ball to be effective. That is not the case at all. He learned in Boston how to play off the ball, and he learned in Charlotte how to play off the ball with Lamelo. So this is a guy that's just as comfortable without the ball as he is with it. Adding, going to a team with Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, like I just, it is a perfect fit. I, I love this trade for them. That's a perfect trade, man. Um, we're kind of at the point where it's like. Now the Sixers have to make moves. The Bucks got a better coach. The Heat got a better team. The Knicks are probably going to scoop Bruce Brown somehow. Yeah. Um, and they got a better team. It's fine. It's time for the Sixers to do something. But what is the move? Can you fence Caruso? Can you get him from the Bulls somehow? What's the What's the trade? They have to do something. You're absolutely right. Because it's becoming an arms race in the East. Like we just mentioned how Cleveland's getting their guys back. Obviously, Boston's been a juggernaut the entire year. Milwaukee, like you said, new coach, New York, the OG trade, and more. They're gonna get they're gonna do more by the end of the trade deadline. Um they need to keep up because Cleveland's only two games behind two and a half games behind Philly. Um, New York's catching up. Miami with this trade will get better at, and as they get healthier throughout the season, like they've had a ridiculous amount of injuries down there in Miami. So if you're Philly, you definitely need to consider how we stay in the third seed or just stay at home court. Like there are teams coming. The thing I'm worried about with the Sixers is like Joel Embiid is going to miss games. He's going to end yeah. the season probably at exactly 65 games. They're probably going to try yeah. to get that down to a science. Uh, what yeah. do you do in those other games? I mean, I've, we've seen them lose. That's where all it's really been. Yeah. What is that? How? What trade can you make to kind of improve that, to give yourself, to guarantee yourself a top four seed when the playoffs start? It's a really good question, and I'm not sure I have an answer to it. I love uh, Alex Caruso to the Sixers. I think that's a really good upgrade, but they kind of need a reliable third option, and I just don't know if that guy exists. Uh, you know, are you sh shelling out? money and picks and shit for DeJounte Murray after seeing what he's been like in Atlanta where it led to no winning and it was a weird fit with Trey Young or are you giving away Tobias Harris who is a an important part of their lineup for Zach Levine you know I don't know. I don't know I don't know what the move is for them I know Alex Caruso is someone they're targeting but if they get Alex Caruso and Bruce Brown does that keep them ahead of a team like Miami like New York, like Cleveland, like, do they get to keep their home court advantage if that's all they do? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, I want to pivot, though. Talk a little bit about the Indiana Pacers just because they're 0-3 since acquiring Pascal Siakam. Yeah. Um, things look a little clunky. The pace is definitely getting slower. Uh, my question is just, you know, looking at the points per game over the last three games, they're hovering around like 109 to 110. Um, yeah. this is a team that's known to put up 130 on teams. I think bringing Pascal to your team kind of slows the pace down inherently. Is this a different, is this going to become a different Pacers team than we were kind of expecting? I actually don't put like a single ounce of anything into these losses just because Halliburton hasn't been there. So he was there for one of I, them, the loss to Portland. Yeah. The loss for Portland, he was there, but he didn't, he wasn't there against Phoenix and he wasn't there against Denver and they kept those games razor thin margin. 
So I, I, I think they're going to be very good. Once Halliburton's healthy and Pascal's out there together, I think that pairing is perfectly. And I actually do think the pace is going to be even faster with the way Pascal plays the game. Like he can grab the rebound and push the break himself or Halliburton can find him diving to the rim on a transition. So I, I have basically zero concern about the Indiana Pacers and Jairus Walker has been playing a little bit more, which is like, what a, we've talked about it on this podcast. We've both been dying to see it. Um, I've just been super happy to see that. And I also quick hot take. He might be better than Asar and Amen by the end of the season as rookies. I, my original fucking draft big board, I had Jairus Walker fourth over the twins. And I'm so upset. I changed my mind because of consensus media. And I want to fucking, I'm so upset. I did that because I want to stick to my guns, but I definitely did get swayed. Um, but I don't know. I'm a fan of the Pacers. I think they'll be just fine. And I think whatever team has to face them in the first round of the playoffs is going to be annoyed. I don't think the Pacers will win, but they're not going to make it easy. I think you're definitely right. I just kind of wanted to bring up the fact that they're 0-3 in their first three games with Pascal. I did also want to bring up, there are five teams in the NBA right now with 30 wins. And I think one of them is very, yeah. very strange. We've got the Bucks, the Celtics, the Timberwolves, the Nuggets, and then the Oklahoma City Thunder have claimed the one seed in the West with a controversial, to say the least, win over Portland the other day. Um, not talking about that win, just the fact that the OKC Thunder have grabbed the one seed for any amount yeah. of time this season is incredible. It's really, really special that this young, young team is doing this. Jalen Williams is going to be an all-star for years. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm having so much fun just watching this team game after game. It's so funny because Jalen Williams kind of reminds me of like baby Paul George in a weird way where he's comfortable handling the ball and playmaking, efficient from all areas of the court. Like it is kind of crazy. Um yeah, OKC has been such an interesting team for me because it is kind of just, I don't care at all about them. I'm just waiting for the postseason. I just want to see what their like weaknesses are um, because if we just did it right now, they'd be facing Dallas. But the way the Western Conference is, we have no idea who they'll actually be playing. So I don't know. I I, I don't really have a lot to say about this team. For, for me, it really is a wait and see because there's nothing bad to say about this team. They just fucking demolition everyone and they pull out close games like they did against the Timberwolves the other night and then against Portland. Um, they they win close games. They have a top six, seven guy in the league. Like you just keep going on and on and on. What is the flaw here? It makes sense that they're 30 wins deep. Yeah, I mean, there there isn't a lot of flaws. There's not, you're right. It's almost kind of boring to talk about them because they've been yeah. the team, the same team from the jump. From the jump, this has been a team that is so much better than people expected, and they just kind of continue to prove it. I have been personally waiting for the comeback down to earth moment where, you know, these teams that have been put together for a while start to kind of figure them out and beat them consistently. It hasn't happened. We haven't come close to that. Um, No. Yeah, so I I, I don't know where it goes from here. I kind of just view them as like the Utah Jazz from a few years ago where it's like Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, they had a system. They were fucking everyone up in the regular season. 56 wins, 55 wins, 54 wins in multiple seasons in a row. I'm just waiting to see what they have in the postseason. Like, I don't know what this team looks like when a, when a coach has night to night, you know, to study these guys and theorize on how to stop them. And, hey, can we put our two guard on Chet all night long to disrupt his dribble? And now he can't 
get to the hole at all and how does that affect their offense shit like that like we saw against the Clippers they put Paul George Kawhi and Terrence Mann on Chet Holmgren he couldn't do fucking shit the entire game he didn't do anything is that something that gets done against him for five games in a row in a playoff series is that his kryptonite that we just haven't seen so far because in the regular season, there's nothing wrong with this team. They're a top five offense. They're a top five defense. They fucking try their asses off every single night. Top seven player, like I said. So there really isn't a lot to criticize. And I'm not the only downfall I see with them doesn't matter in the regular season, which is when they face size, they're going to have a problem rebounding the ball and giving up second chances. But who cares in the regular season? That's the only thing I don't want to happen is a first round series against a team with some crazy size. I just want to see this team, you know, duke it out in the playoffs. And if we run up against like a Lakers, I'm a little bit nervous. The Lakers are not that good, man. But the size they have is overwhelming for OKC. Minnesota is another team where the size is just too much. Um, Do you think that they're a team that will be schemed against as easy as the Utah Jazz of a few years ago were schemed against? Well, that's what I'm curious about. Like, how easy is it to stop Chet Holmgren? Like, is it as easy as it the, the Clippers made it look the other night where they just don't even fucking care that he has the ball and they can poke at his dribble and disrupt his easy offense? Or like, Shay, we see him get 30 every single night and that whistle is blowing every five seconds. Like, is that the truth in the postseason? How do we know? Because we haven't seen it before. If they're a total, like enigma to the entire league no one knows what they look like in the postseason so it's hard to be like optimistic or pessimistic against them it's like pure confusion for me yeah i mean i think that's where a lot of teams are and the fact that they've somehow managed to become the one seed in the west is pretty ridiculous pretty (laughs) awesome for them massive credit to them something i want to talk about quickly is the charlotte hornets i know they're not super exciting and i i have to make this quick but I'm so glad they're finally realizing their true destiny is being one of the four worst teams in the league, right? So they have LaMelo, they have Brandon Miller, but they signed Gordon Hayward three years ago. They signed Terry Rozier to this huge fucking deal. Like they, Michael Jordan was trying to make this team a playoff team his entire tenure, but it just came off the back of horrible decision off horrible decision off horrible decision. They've finally looked at themselves with new ownership and have decided to be complete sellers. Gordon Hayward will be traded by February 8th, and Miles Bridges will also be traded by February 8th. I'm just happy they're finally getting off these guys that are probably a little bit ahead of their timeline and can help other contending teams. Like, I know we hate Miles Bridges here, but I think the Sacramento Kings should do everything in their power to get him on their roster. You know, if you're Sacramento and you get Kyle Kuzma and Miles Bridges, instantly your wing rotation is fucking crazy and you can duke it out with some of the best teams in the West at the wing. Um, I think the Charlotte Hornets are going to be one of those teams where contenders can kind of pick and choose their best players off like we just saw with Miami. So twofold, I'm glad that Charlotte kind of finally recognized their destiny And two, I'm glad the players on this roster actually have a chance to go play meaningful minutes somewhere. Like Gordon Hayward, I think would be an awesome fit for a team like the New York Knicks, Sacramento, like I just mentioned, the Warriors, anything like that. I think he would be a really nice fit. Honestly, 
there's like what these people could be on paper and then it is the you're actually you've brought them to your team now. Like, those are very different in my eyes miles bridges on paper in 2k is a player that could be pretty effective but bringing like just a horrific woman beater onto your team is yeah. never going to be good for the vibes gordon hayward absolutely he's a good three he's a really good three but yep. if he's going to be injured every single time you want productive minutes from him, maybe he's just better off rotting in Charlotte. Um, I think if moving you're... on from Terry Rozier was a great, great decision. But I don't know if these guys are really as effective as we think they are or the team would be better. Hmm. Do you actually believe that, though? Like, if you're New York and you're looking from some for some maturity and scoring touch off the wing... And Gordon Hayward saying, hey, I can come to your team for basically free. Just give out like a second round pick. He's worth $31 million. I think they might reach a buyout in Charlotte, by the way. They've mentioned that. So it's either they're trading him to get some more dead cap onto their team. Like Evan Fournier and Mitchell Robinson. The Knicks get to get off that those contracts and get Gordon Hayward in return. Like that is a massive upgrade. Um I just, I think that's helpful for a team like that. The Warriors, they would fucking kill for Gordon Hayward right now over Andrew Wiggins. You, you know what I mean? So, I and Miles Bridges, you're absolutely right. Like, bringing a domestic abuser onto your team is fucking disgusting. But if your only mindset is to win a championship, that dude just helps. I'm sorry. It's disgusting, I know. But the, real, the reality of the situation is the league is letting him play. So teams are going to trade for him. Like... The Mavericks, you bring Miles Bridges onto that team instead of Grant Williams. Now Luka has a lob threat from the wing spot and the center and a guy who can sit in a corner and bang home a three and self-create. That is a big upgrade for that team. So I'm just happy, like Charlotte is going to take on a lot of dead cap and ass players to get assets attached to them, like slightly protected picks. And they're going to bottom out, like they're going to be horrible. Brandon Miller is going to play more minutes and LaMelo is going to be able to cook. So I don't know. I'm just that's a team that I'm finally happy has recognized who they are, and I'm excited to see their players in a different situation. That recognition seems to have only happened because Lamelo missed 15 some odd games. Um, they wanted to be a team that was good, and they just aren't. I listen back. I thought for sure this team was going to be the ninth seed. Like I was positive they were going to be the ninth seed. But Terry Rozier missed 10 games. Lamelo missed 15. Brandon Miller missed like eight. Miles Bridges was suspended for 10. Mark, like go up and down the roster. They've had the most injuries in the entire league this year. Do I think they could have been a good team if everyone stayed healthy? Yes. Did that happen? No. So it's time to move on. It's time to get rid of these guys. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. PJ Washington is a guy you could probably trade. Um, when it comes to the Knicks and Mitchell Robinson, they have him for three years at like 13, 14 million. I love what he brings to their team. Man. Hartenstein's like basically just as good though. That's why I so mean, it's, it's like a great starting big man to backup big man. But Precious Achua is their backup big now and he's been like, you know, whatever. So I, I just think... That is such a good contract to get you to a salary point to bring in a legitimately good player. Mm. Because 13 plus Evan Fournier's 18, that's $30 million you can put together to bring in a guy that can help you try to win a championship this year. And it's weird because we view the Knicks as like kind of a second tier contender. But if they bring on another difference maker, we have to kind of start seriously considering them to be a good legitimate threat to some of the teams in the East. Um, OG Ananobi is his whole career is based off of making Jason Tatum look like a fucking idiot. Like 
go look at Jason Tatum's lifetime stats against OG. They're fucking pitiful. Does Jalen Brunson catch a heater and OG shuts down Jason Tatum and a massive upset happens? I have no idea. But in if you're the Knicks management, that's what you're thinking to yourself. You're, you're thinking, I might be able to contend. If you're thinking bringing Gordon Hayward to this team changes the team, I'm thinking no. it's 2018. No, no, yeah. I'm not, no, I'm not saying Gordon Hayward specifically. I'm just saying someone. Because they can get Gordon Hayward for vet minimum after a buyout. Mm. They don't have to trade for him. But if... Who, you know, who Alex Caruso? Sure. Bruce Brown? Sure. Like, whoever the fuck is out there, they can afford because they have Fournier's contracts. I think a lineup that has Josh Hart, Bruce Brown, and OG Ananobi on it, those are dogs. That is a lineup yeah. that you do not want to go against offensively. Right. I The East is super interesting because it's so clear there's a juggernaut in the Boston Celtics there. But these other teams are making moves that make me respect them. So, like, if they were to head up against the Boston Celtics, I would feel badly to dis, like... They're all fighting hard for second place, man. That's kind of what it feels like, yeah. And it's like, how good of a fight can you put up against Boston is kind of what they're all competing for. The Knicks are kind of putting together a lineup where it's like, okay, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have fun getting guarded by OG Ananobi and Josh Hart every single night. Like that's going to be annoying as fuck. Uh, I don't know. The East is kind of shaping out to be more interesting than I thought it would be. Yeah. And I really, I don't know what it'll be when the playoffs start. My personal opinion yeah. is if Kristaps Porzingis is healthy, all of this is for nothing. All of these moves they've made, okay. everybody making moves around the edges. It's not going to matter if the Celtics are fully healthy. I think Kristaps is probably the X factor. Derek White or Drew Holiday could be injured and the Celtics could still cruise. But without Porzingis, I think that puts so much strain on Al Horford that he cannot handle. Yeah. If Porzingis goes down, the Celtics are extremely beatable in my eyes. Yeah. Um, it's weird. I was thinking about this today. Like, what are the pitfalls of every contender in the East? The Celtics have a lot of potential downfalls. It's just they've been so dominant that I don't believe they're going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like Drew Holiday, perennial pants pooper. Chris Stops, perennially, perennially injured. Um, Jalen Brown, turnovers. Jason Tatum, shit performances. Like, these are all things that Al Horford, his knees give out. He's 37 years old. These are all things that you can kind of imagine happening. But because they've been so dominant, I don't I don't think any of them will happen. I just think they're going to kind of steamroll. Um but I, I just want to see how other teams kind of match up against them in a series. I think I think New York-Boston would be a fucking bloodbath. I think that would be a bloodbath. I think, I mean, the crowds in both of those stadiums would be yeah. unbelievable. That would be an awesome series. Um, real quick, the last thing I really have I wanted to talk about is the Clippers. The Clippers yeah. are awesome, man. I think every opportunity yeah. we have, we should talk about how awesome the Clippers are. James Harden is a new player man he's a new man on this team he tries all the time um i see him hit shots in the paint that he was absolutely not hitting in philly um the the assists have been beautiful the low turnovers have been beautiful it's just it's fun basketball in uh, in clippertown right now i fucking love watching this team i texted you a few days ago something cool that i can relate to like because i actually went to the games is i when i lived out in la the crowds at Clippers game kind of treated it like it was going out to a movie or going out to the mall where it was like just a thing to do to get out of the house. There wasn't like real passion for what was actually happening on the floor. Like Kawhi went 13 for 15 and th- had 30 points the night I went to the game and no one gave a shit. <laughs> uh, you watch these games. 
listen to the crowd when something's happening. They fucking care. And I've just been super enthused by their style of play. Kawhi, basically a perfect triple-double last night, only missed a few shots. James Harden's been cooking. I, there's nothing wrong with this team as of right now. It's so cool to watch them just decimate their opponents. What do you think that support is? Do you think it's because the Lakers are trash? Or do you think it's just with how great the Clippers have been this year and how fun kind of things have changed? I think it's the star power on the Clippers, to be honest with you. Like, if you're a Lakers fan, you're rooting for Rui Hachimura. <laughs> if you're a Clippers fan, you're rooting for James Harden. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's a very different feeling where... One night you go, Kawhi has 40. The next night you go, Paul George has 40. The next night you go, James Harden has 35 and 10. Like, on any given night, you can see some basketball brilliance, and the style of play is very aesthetically pleasing. Like, the ball is fizzing around. Um, and the isolations that Kawhi and James Harden both do, they aren't taking up a, t- a lot of the shot clock. It's not dribble, dribble, dribble. It's, okay, I'm going to try two moves. If it doesn't work, I'm swinging the rock. And it's just repetitive, and they never stop, and they try on defense. Like it, the, their play style is so infectious. Um, I think that's where the passion from the city is coming from. Like they love that style of basketball. It's a lot of movement, man. There is so much ball movement. It's like they've found like the selfless way to play your turn, my turn basketball. Like there's yeah. no ego about it. It's just like ah, I got my shot last time. Here you go. You take it. I'll get out of the way. Um, yeah. I, I really, really enjoy watching it. And I don't think he's going to win. I don't think he's going to be in awards. But Norm Powell, as a six man, is yeah. so underrated, man. For a team with this much star power to have a guy who could pull up 25, 28 points in a night kind of easily um, if he gets the right open looks, like he has been so important for this team, too. Yeah. And come playoff time, that is a guy that will swing a quarter. Absolutely. He will. Uh, like get off to a four of four start from three in a first quarter and give the Clippers an eight point lead against it. You know, that is the type of player Norm Powell is. And, you know, Kawhi's going to be all NBA this year, whether it's first team or second team, I don't know, but he's been spectacular. Um, Paul George possibly could be first uh, all NBA as well, probably third team. And James Harden, he's going to be one of the biggest snubs of the year for all NBA and all-star. I believe he won't make either. But this dude, since he's become a Clipper after that six-game losing streak, has been nothing short of phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Like he's been incredible. He has been excellent. I mean, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are averaging identical stats right now: twenty-four six and four versus twenty-four six and four. Both of them have about one point six, one point seven steals a game. They are, you know, absolutely Kawhi Leonard's the best player when he's hot. But for him to be able to defer to Paul George and say like, "Yeah, hey, it's not my night. Go out and put up 30. Like the way that they bounce off each other is so perfect. And I heard this stat the other day, all three of those players have their lowest usage percentage in seven years. So you're, you nailed it with your brief description. there, saying they found the selfless way to play my turn, your turn basketball, because that's exactly what's happening. They try their move. If it doesn't work, they swing the rock. And it just, and if that goes for Harden, who's notorious as a ball hog, like Paul George and Kawhi have always been isolation guys, but kind of not viewed as ball hogs. You know, they get rid of the ball so quickly. I love the way the ball fizzes around in that team. And it's like, they are a championship contender. Like in my eyes, they're the challenger to the Nuggets right now, because I've been watching Minnesota a lot lately, and I'm starting to see some holes in their roster that I'm not sure they can fix. 
with the Clippers, I'm not sure what the hole is. I really don't. Can we talk about that? I mean, we can we can finish off with the Clippers, but let's talk about the Minnesota holes. Um, yeah. I love just finally, Russell Westbrook has shrunk his role, but is so okay with it, man. There yeah. are some games they need nothing from him, and he has no problem just cheering on the team and being the best leader and hype man around. Uh, right. But there are some quarters they need him. They need his assists. They need his pushing the ball in transition. And, like, yep. just going from Laker Russ to Clipper Russ. I know we've talked about it before, but what a difference, yep. man. What a difference in leadership in just, like, yep. doing all the right things. It's so hard to not like Clipper Russell Westbrook. This is a guy where I spent my entire life disliking Russell Westbrook. <laughs> yeah. I am a Russell – I am a Westbrook fan. Yeah. Like, for that change to happen can show you how much selflessness he's had since joining the Clippers, where he's just grateful to be there and willing to do the dirty work. Like, that is who he is as a player now, and he still has that pop of athleticism to make him aesthetically pleasing sometimes. So, yeah, that change has been incredible. It's been really fun. Uh, Let's talk about the Minnesota Timberwolves, though, because they are tied for the one seed in the West with OKC. And they had, you know, probably their worst loss of the season against the Hornets the other day. Carl Anthony Towns, 44 points in the first half. Everybody on the team made it their goal to get him to 70 and kind of stopped remembering that they were playing a basketball game. Carl Anthony Towns goes two for 10 in the fourth quarter, four turnovers, and gets benched as they lose the game. Um, yeah. Talk about how you've been feeling about the Timberwolves recently. Yeah, so I've been watching them a lot. That Charlotte game, I was watching for LaMelo and Brandon Miller. I just happened to stumble on a cat freak show where he was making all of his shots. Um, They have some pretty significant issues that I'm starting to realize. Uh, One is probably the guard play. Anthony Edwards, as much as I love him, he is a turnover-heavy player and a shot-chucking type of archetype, right? Sometimes that wins you games by itself, but sometimes it loses you games. And this game against the Hornets, they didn't have Mike Conley, who is a set-up master. He gets his guys the best looks maybe in the league. Mm -hmm. Like, seriously, he's that level of table setter. And without him there, Ant just didn't look the same. He looked super... uh, you know, deferential to the game. He didn't look like he cared. He was just getting Cat the ball and hoping that Cat would take them home to a victory. Anthony Edwards had five turnovers against the Oklahoma City Thunder, which I think might be as bad of a loss as the Hornets' loss. Because if you go back and watch that game, they had a lead in the fourth quarter. Turnover, OKC would get fouled, go to the line, hit two. Minnesota comes up the court, turnover, OKC would go back down, get fouled, score two. And it just happened five, six times in a row where Minnesota had no offensive juice and then couldn't guard SGA or Jalen Williams, would foul them, and then OKC won that game. It's like you had such a lead and you're supposed to be a suffocating defense. How do you lose that game? They just have some issues there with offense and turnovers. Like, they need another adult in the building. I tried to get the Malcolm Brogdon today on the trade machine and I couldn't do it. But they just need a steadying presence so badly. Um, And I don't know what the answer is to that question. I think it's going to have to be Anthony Edwards eventually that becomes a kind of steadying presence. But he's 22 years old right now. Yeah. I think that's a thing we got to kind of keep in mind is this kid has been one of the youngest. He was one of the youngest in his draft class. He's still only 22 years old. Like, 
there is more upward growth for Anthony Edwards in his future, undeniably. And what he needs is the turnovers. The turnovers got to relax. I think he can be a shot chucker his whole career because he's that dude. He's the kind of dude who can put up 40 in a night. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know, man, but it is like, it's interesting when you watch the Minnesota offense just kind of crater and you watch yeah. them just unable to get a bucket from anybody because when it's not Ant, you're really the, the amount of confidence that you have in anybody else coming up and making a bucket is not very high at all. No, it's not. And the ball oftentimes finds Rudy Gobert's hands in these moments because the doubles come so hard at Ant that the ball just swings and the guy you leave open is Gobert. So like, even if he's near the rim, when the ball touches Gobert's hands and he's probably 10 feet away from the basket, basket, I panic. Yeah. And in the postseason, when there are teams with coaches like Mike Malone who have schemes and systems that can just absolutely fuck that if he wants, or if you have the talent of the Celtics, like Drew Holiday is the traffic cop there, like that is a big weakness of theirs. So even though I respect their defense mightily, there's going to be games where they just slog through offensive possessions. And depending on who you play, like that will lose you the game. Yeah. And the reason they looked so incredible against the Nuggets last year is because Ant averaged 32 points. Um, (laughs) So, you know, without your 21 year old averaging 32 points a game on really good efficiency, that offense was going to struggle. Yeah. And so obviously, you know, when everybody's healthy, Mike Conley is one of the bigger difference makers in this league. Averaging six yep. assists to one turnover this year. He just, he's, it's gaudy. It is, it is Chris Paul-esque the way that he is able to set up guys and get out of the way. Um, yeah. But they just lack difference makers in the guard spot. You're right, man. Nikhil Alexander-Walker does some fun stuff every now and yep. then. But he's averaging 6.7 points a game. Yep. Um, I, I am very nervous about the offense. And you should be. And you should be. And I've tried to get them guys through the trade machine like Tyus Jones, but it just doesn't work because they have to get rid of Kyle Anderson and he is the emotional leader of the team. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, do you trade your leadership for a player that fits your roster better? Well, are you the same team mentally? Do you have the same fervor going into a playoff series? Like it, there's too many questions with them and it's it's hard to kind of diagnose how to fix their issues right now or if they're even fixable. Like this might just be what this team is. So I kind of want to go back to a conversation we had maybe either at the start of the season or maybe the off season, which is the $90 million split amongst Kat and Rudy Gobert. Um, this yeah. year it's, let's see, it's 77 million this year. Next year it'll be 92 million. Um, that's so much money to give two seven footers who are slow footed as hell. Uh, I have always kind of been on the mindset, regardless of how good Cat can be offensively, that's just not going to work out. The two seven footers together that play the way they do. How do you feel about that? It's a really good question. You have been adamant about it. Clearly, something's working, right? Because they they're tied for the best absolutely, record in the West. Absolutely. So s- something's working. Um, what we saw from Cat in the Charlotte game was terrifying, where like he really was just trying to score more than Joel Embiid. He didn't care about winning the game. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's pretty tough to see. I get it. It's the middle of January against a bottom four team, and you have a chance to do something historic. I got it. But that is concerning, and that does kind of, you know, Cat has to stay away from that reputation a little bit because I think that's how people already view yeah. him. Yeah. Is anybody surprised that Cat's the one who's doing that? 
Exactly. Right. No, no one was. And for Chris Finch to come out after the game and say that was immature basketball, that was a disgrace to the game of basketball, and Carl Anthony Towns didn't care about winning, he wanted some points. Yeah. Like, how often do you hear a coach scathe their players like that? Like, that was a ripping post-game press conference. So, in terms of playoff basketball, I, it really does depend on Ant can you score 32 points a game? And do I trust him to do that? Yes. But how long can he sustain that when he get has guys like Rudy Gobert turning the ball over and not being able to fucking dunk on a six foot four guy or Jaden McDaniels trying to create his own shot, but he's just not talented enough. Like how long can you rely on one dude to carry your offense? Right. And the, the issue, the reason that I've been so adamant on moving Carl Anthony Towns is really just the paycheck. If you take $50 million, you could absolutely get some more talented players around the edges. And you could have yeah. Ant and Rudy Gobert as your elite defensive combo. Uh, and then you just spend that $50, 50 mil in a better way for your team. Carl Anthony Towns yeah. is a crazy player. He's awesome. Uh, you know, not many centers are capable of putting up 62. Pretty much none of them are capable of going eight of nine from three in the first half and putting up 44 points. He's a very, yeah. very unique player. But at a certain point, you know, is he worth $50 million? <laughs> the answer is no. We know the answer. It's the same thing with Jalen Brown, right. right? Is he worth $60 million? No. Like, no, obviously not. Like, you watch the games, no, that dude is not worth his paycheck. But you have to keep your homegrown talent around. Right. But then it puts you in this weird spot, right? Is Rudy Gobert worth $40 million? No. God fucking no. That dude is not worth that amount of money. But this is the team you've crafted, and Carl Anthony Towns has five years left on his deal, and Rudy Gobert has three years left on his deal. Like, you kind of have to lay in the bed that you made. Now, can they make fringe moves that gets them a ball handler that can actually put them in good positions? I don't know. I tried to do it. I couldn't find a way to do it. Um, but they, that's what they need to be a legit title contender in my eyes is another adult in the building at the point guard spot. I think really the only reason that they've been able to be a number one seed this year is because we're still on the rookie deal for Ann Edwards. He's only getting 13 mil this year as opposed to 35 mil next year. That's a lot of yeah. money that you can spend. And they spent it all on Mike Conley. Mike Conley's getting 24 and a half million dollars this year. So yeah. Next year, I think it's almost a guarantee that one of Carl Anthony Towns or Rudy Gobert gets moved. It'll be Cat. Yeah. Because no one wants Rudy Gobert. So it'll be Cat. Uh, and it's just, what is, is he just seven foot tall Zach Levine? Like, is that how he's viewed on the trade market where, yeah. hey, we don't even really want to attach first round picks to it because his contract is so long and we're not even sure he's a winner? Like, is that who he is on the trade market? Like, that's a pretty scary spot to be if you're Minnesota. Going full circle here, does he work next to Evan Mobley? Could you put those two big men together on the floor? Oh, God. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea, dude. I'm not sure where Cat works. Like, I think a really interesting spot for him, in my opinion, is New York. Yeah. Because they have Josh Hart, they have OG Ananobi, Julius Randle. It's, but some of the salary has to go, right? So, like, I don't know how he gets there because Mitchell Robinson, Evan Fournier is not enough. I think maybe if you add Dante DiVincenzo, you could do it. I'm not sure. But are the are the Knicks willing to, like, 
just scrap their team that they've put together for a guy that's not a proven winner. Like that seems like something Tom Thibodeau would not be a huge fan of. Especially considering Tom Thibodeau has coached Carl Anthony Towns before. True. Yes, I totally forgot about that. The Jimmy Butler in Minnesota year. That was Tom Thibodeau as a coach. So I don't know. I'm just, I just, sorry. I'm now I'm trying to do it. Hold on. Give me one second because I'm thinking Evan Fournier, Mitchell Robinson, Dante DiVincenzo and three unprotected first round picks. And then you just send. Cat shake. Nikhil Alexander. Walker. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or so- something of that nature. Yeah. Okay. So Nikhil Alexander Walker and Carl Anthony Towns go to New York for Evan Fournier, Mitchell Robinson and Dante DiVincenzo and three first round picks. Like that's something that could work. I don't know if you're the Timberwolves, if you want to do that, like that's a pretty gross trade. (laughs) You're trading one of the best players in franchise history for dudes who will not see a minute for you basically. Um, But they're in a weird spot. The Timberwolves, man, they're in a really weird spot. They are in a weird spot. We're at this place where it's just like, it's a wait and see time for the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, We got to see what works and what doesn't work because if they end up facing the right opponents, like they will steamroll the Oklahoma city thunder. If they go yeah. up against them, it will not be close. So if they get the right matchups, maybe they just make it to the Western Conference Finals anyway. You're totally right. Like maybe their size is just an advantage that other teams don't have and propels them into contendership. Right. Right. Like if they face Sacramento in the first round and then face OKC, you know, like there's a path where they can just bludgeon people all the way to the Western Conference Finals. Absolutely. Um, quickly, last thing, I know this, we're starting to ramble a little bit, but you made a TikTok last year that went viral. Um, the Phil Jackson rule, right? To be a legitimate title contender, you need 40 wins before you have 20 losses. We have a few teams that are in contention for this. Um, Boston, obviously. Milwaukee, obviously. Philly is on that track as well. Cleveland would be a stretch, but they could achieve it. Um, OKC, obviously, Minnesota, obviously, Denver, obviously, and the Clippers, obviously. That is fucking seven teams that I just named that legitimately will get 40 wins before 20 losses. What are your thoughts on that? Having a a pool that big to fit the Phil Jackson theory? Because last year, I think it was only four teams. It was three teams, and the Sixers were 39 and 20. They were one win short. They ended up playing Boston for that 40th win and lost. Um, It's a great question, man. I mean, we talk about it every year, how good the league is getting and how crazy the parody is. But then you actually take a look and it's like those dog shit teams, those are just free (laughs) victories for any team worth the salt. Uh, Detroit has four wins so far in the season. The Spurs have eight. The Wizards have seven. The Hornets have ten. Every single time they play a team worth their shit, that's a loss. Um, So, you know, it depends on what the schedule looks like for like a team like Cleveland. That would be an uphill battle. Being able to get 14 more wins before five losses, that would be an uphill battle. Um, I think the Clippers have a bit of an uphill battle, but it's just like the fight at the top is going to be very difficult. All of those teams are the teams who are beating every seven seed and below that they come into contact with. But it's the fights against the (laughs) top teams that are really going to make that tough. I just think I've never, like, it's weird because a part of me thinks, okay, it's just Denver, Boston. But then I see that and I'm like, no, there's like legitimate talent in and out. If Joel Embiid has a historic playoff run like he's been doing in the regular season. Okay, that team is like legitimately a threat to winning the title. 
or if Dame figures it out, like we talked a little bit about earlier, or if Kawhi, Paul George, and James Harden all stay healthy all year long. Like, that is a legit threat. It's just, I don't remember seeing this many teams that, like, at least have a, an idea of getting to the finals, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Phil Jackson rule, the 40 wins before 20 losses, the track record's really solid. Um, it's not yeah, it's very, I, very rare that a team wins the chip without that, unless it's like a shortened year or a COVID year. Like when it's a full 82 right. game season, most of those teams, I think the Pistons, the bad boy Pistons are one of the only teams yeah. I can think of that don't follow that rule. Um, so obviously those teams are and, the top uh, of the juggernauts. I think it was like the 94 Rockets too, when they traded for uh, Clyde Drexler at, at, at the, the trade deadline. deadline. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so that's what it took was but, a massive trade deadline trade that shifted the team dynamics entirely. Like this is a exactly. rule that you can be pretty confident to follow. Right. Bring in a top 10 player at the time with the best player in the league. And then you win a championship. That makes right. sense back for those rockets. Right. So I don't know. It's just the Phil Jackson rule has been kind of lingering on my mind because the season you made that video, the Denver Nuggets won the championship. Like it came true again. Um, I, I'm just super intrigued by the season. I can't wait to the playoffs. You're right. We're starting to hit that lull where it's like we kind of have an idea of who teams are. We have an idea of who the true contenders are. Depending on what happens at the trade deadline, like we kind of know what the playoffs are going to look like. That's my thing is um, that the quote-unquote worst loss of the season for the Timberwolves against the Hornets, absolutely yeah. meaningless in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> It does not matter yeah. at all that they lost that game. It doesn't matter at all that Ant had nine points. Yeah. If Cat had gotten to 70, it would have been a moment we would have gotten to talk about forever. But next week, yeah. nobody's going to give a shit. Right. And Ant has been reported to have the flu. He played with the flu that game. So then it's like, oh, that's why he wasn't shooting. You know, it's like we're at that point of the season where it's just like, okay, these guys are tired. They don't feel like playing every single night. They're facing a garbage team. Like, I kind of get it. Um, so we need the trade deadline to kind of shake things up and make things look interesting here to kind of not have chalk for the postseason. It feels like it's going to go chalk. Right. Yeah, we've got two weeks here for some interesting trades to happen. Uh, last yep. episode, we came up with a shit ton. I mean, it's kind of cool that the Kyle Lowry, Terry Rozier thing actually happened. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> I'm hoping what I really want to happen is the Kings either get Kyle Kuzma or Jeremy Grant because they're they're not a contender in my eyes kind of at mm. all right now. I just I just don't see them in the same light as I did last. Not even no, I knew they were going to lose the first se series last year. So it's like they need to take a step up. We have teams like New Orleans that are starting to bludgeon everyone they play. Phoenix is looking more competent as those three guys continue to be healthy. Um you know, how does Sacramento put themselves in that mix? Same thing with Dallas. Like, go get Miles Bridges. Go get Jeremy Grant. Go get someone at the wing spot. Did you see Harrison Barnes with a 30-point game the other day? Time <laughs> yeah, to trade him I now. Right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. His value's literally never been higher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Kings are, De'Aaron Fox wins you the game or he doesn't. Yeah. Like, if he's yeah. not putting up 25 to 30, the Kings have no chance. <laughs> And you know what? Me and you gave Sabonis a ton of credit last year. He's having an even better year this year. Yeah. Right? So, like, he's worth a max. He's an all-NBA caliber player. It's just their third guy versus teams in the West third guys, it's it's not even a fucking competition. Like, Keegan Murray, that's your third dude compared to fucking James Harden. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't match up. They get washed. But it's the fourth dude. 
with the Kings. Like Keegan Murray's great, True. but then it's like Malik Monk or Kevin Herter <laughs> or Harrison Barnes or Trey Lyles. Yeah. Like it, it's a drop off after three. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And we've seen the Pelicans, who are starting to like really become an, an actually good team, bludgeon the Kings multiple times this season. And they season. did it by holding De'Aaron Fox to low-scoring games. Herb Jones put him in prison. Yeah. And we're seeing Zion on a career-low you know, usage put up still decent stats. It's more of a team game in New Orleans now, and they're, they're starting to put together some wins here. You know, I don't know. It just feels like Sacramento's too far away and they need to shake things absolutely, up for me. Absolutely, absolutely. Very, very quick shout out to Herb Jones because you brought up the Pelicans. He's shooting 40% from yeah. three right now. Never would have saw that yep. coming. A million years, never would have saw that coming. I don't, fuck. One more thing. Do you think the Pelicans can actually make a noise in the playoffs or is this just some phase that they're having phase. right now? I don't think okay. Willie Green's the guy. I think uh, they don't really... <laughs> You know, for being a top 10 offense and defense, they've had some of the worst losses this season of any of the teams yeah. out there. That is true. Their play-in loss to the Lakers was despicable. Yes, yes 100%. Um, I'm not a big believer. I don't know. What about you? I can't tell. I have no idea. Yeah. I, they're so well-rounded, but as long as Zion's looking slightly overweight, I literally cannot trust anything that man does, even though he's been, like, really healthy this year. He's played 36 games out of 41. Like, that's really good. And CJ McCollum is somehow shooting 45% from three on eight attempts yeah. a game. Crazy yeah. shit going on. Yeah, so we'll see with them, but this has been a long one. We just had some basketball on the brain, but... Is there anything else, Ben? Anything? That's going to do it for me. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you later. Peace. All right. Peace.